собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So it's kind of funny to start off the last episode of this year and the last SRB podcast ever with a pitch to chip in some cash to help me keep this podcast going. But if you heard last week's episode, you know that this the SRB podcast name is going away. This podcast will still be around, um, though I will be going on a hiatus. So if you heard this in the last episode, none of this will be news to you. But just to make it clear, I announced that I will be taking a hiatus to rethink and rebrand this podcast. As I said last week, I've never been comfortable with the SRB name, and I'm finally taking the winter holiday to think about changing it. I'll also be rethinking the interview-only format. So when I return, this podcast will have a new name, and it will have a new format. Uh, as of right now, the format will likely be some combination of the old, that is the straightforward interviews, and with the new, more storytelling, more of a narrative format. So just to repeat, interviews aren't going away, only how they'll be curated will change. My tentative plan as of right now is to return in early February, so you don't need to change anything. When I come back, it'll come right back up on your podcasting feed, you'll just have a new name. So, on to this week's episode. Well, this is an important one, um, not just because it finishes four episodes that I've done on Ukraine, something that I actually didn't plan, it just turned out to be that way, um, but it's really important because it deals with a really crucial topic, and that is the impact of the war in Ukraine on mental health. And this is an interview I did about uh, several weeks ago with doctors Carmen Andrescu and Alex Dombrovsky, who are two psychiatrists here at the University of Pittsburgh, who have been working uh, through nonprofits in Ukraine to help treat people with trauma, stress, and other mental health issues. I think when it comes to war, this is one of the issues that... Uh, often doesn't get talked about, and when it does get talked about, it's usually after the conflict is over, even though issues of trauma and all the other things one can imagine dealing with violence, dislocation, the loss of home, family, friends, etc., it happens during the conflict. Dr. Alex Dombrovsky is a geriatric psychiatrist and neuroscientist at the University of Pittsburgh. He's originally from Moscow, and he studies decision-making in mental illness and takes care of patients, mostly with severe depression and dementia. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, Alex has been raising money for Ukrainian mental health. And Dr. Carmen Andrescu is an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh as well, and the president of Global Initiative on Psychiatry USA. Through this organization, both Carmen and Alex have been working to provide mental health services to people in Ukraine. If you'd like to make a donation to their efforts, go to www.gip-usa.org or to www.gip-global.org. 
That's the American and global branches of the Global Initiative on Psychiatry, uh, respectively. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. Here's Drs. Carmen Andrescu and Alex Dombrovsky. Just to start, since both of you are in an area of expertise that tends to be outside of my ballywick and the ballywick of my audience, um, I'd like to have you introduce yourself and talk a bit about what you do in your professional work. Let's start with you, Carmen. Thank you, Sean. I'm really glad to be here and talk about the effort that Alex and I and our colleagues are putting into helping mental health relief in Ukraine. As you said, I'm um, an associate professor of psychiatry at Pitt in the Department of Psychiatry. I'm a geriatric psychiatry also, and I work a lot with people who have anxiety, depression, people with cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's disease, and other related dementia. But I do spend uh, most of my time uh, in the lab. As Alex, I'm a neuroscientist. I do a lot of work related to neural markers of anxiety and depression, treatment response markers, markers of accelerated aging. And for you, Alex? My day job is uh, to run a decision neuroscience lab at the psychiatry. We study decision-making in depression, borderline personality, suicide, um, and also in anxiety. And um, we also study the antidepressant placebo effect with my collaborators. Um, and we also study at the basic level how, how we made, make decisions and also why we make bad decisions. And I see patients one day a week, um, similar uh, focus to Carmen's. I see a lot of patients with difficult to treat depression, dementia, and neuropsychiatric disorders. Both of you who are, who are doing a lot of work or what you just said, but also doing specializing in geriatric issues. How did you get drawn into mental health and, and Ukraine in the last several months? Uh, Alex, why don't you start? I woke up on February 22nd, which was the first announcement of essentially annexation, right, of the border territories, the so-called republics. And then February 24th. And it was such a feeling that something has broken in, in my life and um, also a lot of shame, you know, being Russian and a lot of guilt for not having done more to prevent this. And I, I was living with these, with these feelings for a few days and it just felt like something needed to be done. Um, I, I wrote to um, the leadership of the Ukrainian Psychiatric Association asking what they needed, what, what could we do to help? And they said, that, well, there's this organization that is run on the ground uh, by Robert Van Boren, who is a human rights activist uh, with a long history of um, pushing for human rights and mental health reform in the post-Soviet countries. Uh, and I connected with Robert and Robert said, well, your colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh are already involved and Car Carmen was one of them. And um, then it immediately became apparent how, how we can be useful. And this is wonderful. It, it's, it's really um, the best thing we can do. Oh, that's nice. So did you know each other before? Yes, we, we knew each other. Well, we actually are residency classmates. 
Oh, <laughs> wow. So how about you, Carmen? So you were already involved in this. So how did you get drawn into dealing with mental health issues around the war? Uh, well, I, I had a, another life before I came to the U.S. I, uh, I trained as a psychiatrist in Romania. And while I was doing training there, that's when I encountered this organization, the Federation Global Initiative in Psychiatry, which at that point had already a pretty like amazing reputation as uh, one of the organizations that managed to exclude the Soviet psychiatric association from the world psychiatric association due to their abysmal records and abuses in psychiatry there was a long track record of the soviet um, psychiatric association using mental health to try and control dissidents many of them have been thrown in psychiatric asylums treated against their will slammed with with fake diagnosis obviously so by the time the berlin wall fell and then the soviet union disintegrated this organization shift shifted their focus uh, to mental health in the former Soviet Union and in all these Eastern European countries who've been cut off from, um, from the rest of the world. So they had a lot of projects, but they actually had more interestingly, they were doing this grassroots kind of um, activities, trying to see what each country or each center needed and they were funding projects all over the place. And that's how they ended up fun funding a project of mine. I was a resident and I was completely clueless about, about this. But I, um, let's say I, I had um, optimism and energy and uh, they, they started to invest in us trying to reform mental health programs in Romania. And then when I, when I left, I stayed in touch. Uh, I um, ended up going to, to some of their meetings, uh, being part of uh, various um, boards, making sure that you know, some of the things that here were easy to understand and implement had some pathway toward translation in that part of the world. And then just as Alex said, I woke up, um, actually, I think it was like 1 a.m. here or close to midnight when um, the Russian troops moved into Ukraine. And I, I remember I woke up my daughter and I told her things won't be the same. You know, both of you come from places, you know, Romania for you, Carmen, Russia for you, Alex, that have, as you pointed out, Carmen, really storied histories in terms of the profession of psychiatry and psychology. But does that experience, that baggage that you come from, the context in which you both come from, how does that, does that give you a, a perspective on things that you find that's different than, say, your American colleagues? I actually knew uh, some of the people who were involved in repressive psychiatry in the Soviet Union. The representative of the Russian psychiatry, Soviet psychiatry in the World Psychiatric um, Organization was my chair uh, of psychiatry at my medical school. He was still around. And we, young people, we learned about the abuses and there was a deep feeling of injustice and 
also, how could these people still have these jobs and pretend that nothing, nothing happened? Uh, I asked some of them and they just rationalized it away. Is it, well, the dissidents were mentally ill. It was better for them than going to the gulag. Um, and I think there is a deeper sense that the Russian society has never had the moral purification. Uh, there, there was no repentance for all the wrong that has been done. Um, and that, that's kind of like a spring inside you. you. You feel that this is wrong. You feel that you want to do something about it. Uh, but often it's not clear what, what can be done. And how about for you, Carmen? How has you know studying in Romania and coming out of that context informed your approach or, or influenced you? Well, um, I think there are two parts of that question. How did it influence my approach to, to my work here? It kept me... I'd say chronically grateful for the opportunities that I had here, for the fact that I, I felt often like a kid in a candy store. Back home, I think the first answer you would always get would be, it's going to be difficult. Uh, here, most of the time, the first answer was like, okay, let's try and see what happens. And that, uh, that shifts many things inside your psyche. I think the second... Um, um, the second way in which your your question can be answered has to do more with uh, what Alex was uh, saying. How how seeing this this lack of purge, although purge can be a, a strong word, but this lack of reckoning, this lack of cleansing, or at, at least of you know airing the history, shorter for Romania, longer for Russia. Um, how, how that how that influenced the way the system wasn't growing okay the 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 soil hasn't been mm, let's say reformed therefore the new trees were kind of crooked and they were not looking very healthy and as alex said the same people were in charge that's why this for example this organization tried to kind of ignore as much as possible those who were still in charge and they were part of the old system because they, as Alex said, they were rationalizing a lot of things that happened before and they were having a different way of looking at the things that we wanted to, to reform. Um, and they tried to invest in younger generations and, and people who had like s solid springs. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, already in our conversation, there, there's, you know, I'm just words like purging, cleansing, getting through, um, coming to terms with. I mean, these are all, to me, terms that speak to one of the issues of trauma, right? Trauma is the failure to go to process certain things, events, experiences, et cetera. Um, what, how do you understand trauma, Alex? There is a, a narrow definition of trauma that, that's the clinical definition in the psychiatric classification. And that is the experience or the threat of injury, death, or sexual violence. And there's a broader understanding of psychological trauma as uh, deeply distressing events that are existentially threatening and outside of your control. Um, it's often useful to stick to the narrow definition when we decide 
um, who is ill, who is developing what we call acute stress or post-traumatic stress. For, for the reason that um, these, this definition is grounded in the experience of facing a predator or a individual of your species who is trying to hurt you, which is what chimps and humans, among other species, do. And there is a response that we are programmed to mount, and we have very ancient structures in our brain that go back to our frog and fish ancestors that detect the threat, that decide whether to freeze or to escape or fight, execute the escape, go to the safe place, and then decide when it's time to come out of the safe place. And um, the symptoms of acute stress and post-traumatic stress are well understood as essentially components of looking out for the threat, vigilance, being easily startled, not being able to sleep, or being ready to escape or freezing, um, feeling kind of aroused, uh, not being able to um, relax and engage. And a lot of them also have to do with not re-engaging. So um, especially in chronic uh, post-traumatic stress, the feeling that your life is over, that you have been ruined by the experience, that you cannot have a relationship, not having interest in your future or actively engaging, a little bit like staying in your shelter and not wanting to come out. Um, so that's, that's kind of the narrow definition and how it helps us understand the, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress that we experience. Um, but of course, there is also the broad definition of an experience which could also be interpersonal or social that is threatening outside of your control and has an impact on your life or on your development as a person. That's why traumas experienced during the critical period of childhood can be particularly um, disruptive. You know, if, if you experience a trauma as a baby, you may not be able to trust people. And if you experience the trauma as a teenager in the context of a bad relationship, you may not be able to have healthy relationships for, for the rest of your life. Do you have anything to add, Carmen, to your understanding of trauma? No, I think that, I mean, I do, but I think that actually that's a, <laughs> that's a, a perfect, let's say, overview of individual trauma. All I would add is that in, in the context of our conversation, I think it it's hugely relevant to the, the trauma outside of the, let's say, the individual experience, the collective trauma, the historical trauma, the intergenerational trauma, that it's probably harder for our American colleagues to, uh, to grasp just because this land has been kind of blessed. Uh, compared with, let's say, the bloodlands of Eastern Europe that Timothy Snyder was talking about, for example, where I don't know how many generations, if there are two generations that have the luxury of not being exposed to, to the kind of trauma that Alex was uh, talking about. And there have been some 
pretty cool studies um, done in the last decades showing that trauma to which, let's say, the mother is exposed has consequences for uh, the children. Um, and those consequences are, are not just psychological, they are also related to physical well-beings, to higher risks of the illnesses like that we all encounter, like high blood pressure and diabetes. And uh, so the more you stretch the umbrella, uh, more things you would find. This makes me wonder about, you know, you're in dealing with a place like Ukraine and the trauma that's occurring right now with within a context of this generational trauma or historical trauma that people in that region have experienced repeatedly in the last century or so. And then you have, of course, the fact that psychiatry and psychology has a, a tarnished history in, in that region. I'm curious about how if you've encounter how do you deal with or encounter this uh this multi-generational or intergenerational trauma in trying to deal with say just to give an example you have a person who ha has the symptoms of you know mental issues around the war for example and their parents most probably or even their grandparent lived through the second world war or maybe even the collapse of the communist system if that's a traumatic experience for those people how do you address that now let's start with you, Carmen. How, how do you deal with a situation or, or navigate it? With a lot of care, but definitely keeping in mind a few things. Maybe it's not just the war. One thing that makes things very difficult is when there are um, different layers of trauma. For example, um, people in Ukraine, and Alex can definitely speak to this, but people in Romania too, giving their experience or the experience of their um, parents and, um, and grandparents with uh, the way men the mental health system collaborated with the authorities. They don't really trust us. They don't come forward. And that and as I said, a different layer of, of complexity where when, when someone has acute trauma and they feel they have nowhere to, uh, to go to for help, can you imagine that uh, warps the, the entire presentation already? So on top of that, a, an area of a part of the world where the stigma of mental illness is pretty thick. And uh, so, so, so you have a recipe that complicates how you approach people that have been um, put in traumatic situations. Uh, Alex, for you too, you know, as a native Russian speaker, um, is there a, and, you know, and I don't, I don't know when you're in Ukraine, you speak Ukrainian or Russian, I don't know, but is there, I'm curious even if in also in Ukrainian, in, in dealing with this issue, is it sometimes difficult to have a language? Is there a language to even speak about these issues? It is the case that many notions of modern psychology are either not uh, reflected in the language or maybe certain concepts are not native, that there are English or French words that have been borrowed. But I guess the 
at the semiotic level, the understanding is all, altogether different. Th this is changing and it, it has been changing throughout the 90s and, and 2000, um, but there, there is still a long way to go. Um, what I wanted to say is that in Ukraine, uh, we do see that people are becoming more open about their emotional problems, about getting treatment. Activists are talking about needing an antidepressant after um, becoming depressed or, or anxious. And that is a wonderful thing. And um, at a societal level, I also wanted to say that I'm amazed by the healthy civic society that has emerged in the Ukraine despite everything and the much healthier political culture, what we see in Russia. Um, it, it is a very resilient country, as learning, despite the trauma that has gone through over the last 300 years. And do you feel that maybe in a way that that emerging civil society is in in some cases a reaction to those past traumatic events that the society has experienced? Yeah, I ask myself that question. Um, I don't I don't have a clear answer to that. I think one important factor is that part of the Ukraine was uh, in Austro-Hungary and it preserved uh, Ukrainian culture and was not as damaged by the Ru Russian oppression. And also those parts of Ukraine that were later in Poland um, and, and partly Hungary and Romania, Slo Slovakia, were a bit of a uh, safe haven for Ukrainian culture up until World War II. The Ukraine also has a larger diaspora relative to the population of the country that is very engaged. People feel very Ukrainian, uh, very connected. And I think that has really um, impacted the political and, and social culture in a way that in Russia it, it didn't. Hello, I'm JP Bristow, host of the Russian Empire History Podcast, the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. More than the story of the Russians, or even the Eastern Slavs, it is also the story of the Balts, the Finno-Ugrian peoples of the Northern Forests, Iranic and Turkic peoples from the Steppe, the indigenous peoples of Siberia and the Far North, and the peoples of the Caucasus, the most genetically and linguistically diverse place on Earth. It's the story of a small people acquiring an empire the size of a continent, of how that empire fell apart and was rebuilt as a different kind of empire in the Soviet Union. It's a story that is still not over. Despite the rise to independence of Poland, Ukraine, Armenia, the Kyrgyz Republic and other countries, Russia still includes colonized people and still bears its imperial legacy. Join me in the Russian Empire History Podcast to learn how we got to today's Russia. In, in your work in Ukraine, you know, today, um, what kind of, what are some of the issues that you encounter or you have encountered in a kind of general sense? What are people dealing with? There are um, two kinds of 
One is that millions of people have been subjected trauma in, in this very narrow and specific sense of experiencing physical violence and in some cases sexual violence on the occupied territories. And many of those people are going through the state of acute stress when you cannot sleep, you cannot relax, things feel unreal, you're seeing yourself from the outside, um, you um, may have anger outbursts um, or kind of trouble regulating your emotions. Um, and most people will recover. However, some will go on to develop more chronic post-traumatic stress or other mental health problems like depression, anxiety, alcohol problems, and so on. Um, but at another level, what happens is that the Ukrainian mental health system, which we can talk more about, uh, was damaged and paralyzed. And people who were very severely mentally ill, people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, dementia, who required treatment and care, uh, could not get it, especially in the East and the North during the initial Russian invasion. And that was a major disruption that, that we had to address. And, and Carmen, how did you, how did you, you and your, your team of people working, how did you address those issues? The fact that you have, you have a, it seems a double problem, right? You have the experience of people as a result of the war, and then the experience of people who are already in a, a, a poor mental, you know, in a, in a mental health situation that no longer have access if they had access to that care. Right. I, I start with a second one because it, it's a little bit easier and it's a little bit easier because we do have an, an you know, account. We know uh, how many psychiatric hospitals are in Ukraine, 58, how many what they call social care homes, which are kind of like nursing homes or homes for the chronically ill. 145. How many mm, patients and residents are together in that? About 80,000. Okay, we have numbers. Numbers. It's easier to deal with that. How many of? Can you can you give with the numbers? Can you give a sense of how does that compare with I don't know maybe another a European country in terms of per population or something like this? If you happen to know, I don't know from the top of my head, but I can tell you that Ukraine and Alex, please correct me if I'm wrong. Ukraine has a pretty like old classic system with a lot of like asylum, large hospitals that encounter, they have that keep many patients. Most of the care that we deliver, for example, in Western Europe is based on models of community-based psychiatry, acute inpatient care, smaller facilities. That has been an issue, obviously, because these large facilities ended up in the, you know, to be on the front line or close to the front line, have been bombed, have been damaged. Um, and uh, many of those facilities close to, uh, to the front line were... Um, uh, unable to take care of the patients because they remained without electricity, without, you know, all the all the usual things. There was no way to bring medication. Some of the doctors chose to stay there. Uh, some other mental or other staff decided 
to to become refugees so they, there were less people to take care of the chronically ill patients who had very little other options than to to stay in and uh, in those damaged facilities and we do have on our website for example a pretty heartbreaking movie that was filmed by one of our collaborators there uh, who went in um, in several of these facilities uh, one of them is in Chernihiv pretty close to Kiev uh, it's been conquered in the first phase of the war and then when the Russian army retreated um, they were able to go there and film the the patients and the doctors and the nurses the the staff that has stayed there there one of the drivers describes how, how he has been tortured the patient stayed in the basement with obviously nothing to except uh, the they prepared the food on, on this kind of archaic i don't know 19th century kind of vices and the um, the nurses and the doctor were staying there with them one of the most probably difficult to imagine story from that movie had to was the one that the doctor described that when one of the patients died she had to uh, she was donning her white coat to go outside in the somewhere in the backyard where they made this makeshift graveyard hoping that the Russian snipers would see the white coat and not take an aim at her and the people who are trying to bury their patients. This is one of many, many, many stories like this. So that was the somehow the part of the, let's say, of the situation that we knew better how to deal with, delivering humanitarian and medical aid to these mental health facilities because we had this direct connection with the Ukrainian Psychiatric Association, the president is actually um, a physician, Dr. Semyon Glusman, a psychiatrist, who spent time in the Gulag about 10 years because he spoke against the abuse of psychiatry in uh, during the Soviet times. So we had a very good relationship with him and with the rest of the leadership. They were able to tell us which hospitals were most damaged and needed most care, most help. And uh, one of the younger psychiatrists in the network, Dr. Dargach, was the one who initiated this uh, this project and uh, basically started going by herself with a driver in a van around the country delivering aid. And the first thing we she asked for was another van <laughs> and, and money to, to pay the driver because he was doing it voluntarily. Very, very small things. The second part, it's a little bit more complicated. As Alex said, scope of the problem is huge, but how many of these people end up going to see a mental health professional? That's a different story. We do have, um, we have different projects for that. One is a psychological aid program for first responders, those who drag the survivors from under the rubbles, they're not doing too well themselves. So they they need support too. And then there is another arm for the aid toward the general population. That's inside Ukraine. Then there is a story of the refugees. 
Yeah, it seems it sounds just like a, a layers upon layers upon layers of issues. But you know, I have to say, one of the things I didn't consider, and I don't know why I didn't, I just didn't think of it, is the fact that you know you have doctors and clinicians who are going through this experience just like you know regular people, and they themselves are having to treat. You know, it's like you know potentially trauma upon trauma. Um, Alex, can you speak to the the state of the the doctors in Ukraine and how they're dealing with this kind of situation in their own even personal experience and having to deal with patients? Just to just to add one thing to what to what Carmen said, um, um, we were very proud uh, that we were able to deliver aid to frontline hospitals early in the war in the north. And in the east, in Chernihiv, in Kramatorsk, in Nikolaev, Zaporizhia, and helping people with basic supplies and medications, that was one of the most effective things we were able to do and will continue to do under Russian shelling and rocket and drone attacks on the, on the infrastructure. To speak to the uh, experience of um, doctors and the conditions in, in which they work, We, we have spoken to a few colleagues, so I don't claim to have exhaustive knowledge of that. However, it is true that one of the definitions of trauma is being constantly exposed to the details that are disturbing, such as details of abuse, or in the case of first responders, uh, body parts, or, or seeing the scenes, and that, that can cause professional burnout. However, the Ukrainian doctors that we spoke to um, have a very strong sense of their mission. Um, they do not sound broken. They, they work in very difficult conditions, but um, they express the sense of meaning that everything that they do, however difficult it is, um, has this larger purpose of um, helping the country go on and helping the country win the war as well. And that, that's, that's been wonderful to hear. To speak to the practical conditions in, in which people work, as Carmen mentioned, Ukraine had a very comprehensive post-Soviet mental health system that mostly relied on putting people in hospitals for very long period of times, uh, periods of time. And uh, to your question about how extensive this infrastructure was, for a country of that income, Ukraine has a lot of bad, a lot of hospitals resulting in, in a very large population of people in hospitals and care homes who, as Carmen said, cannot live outside of the institute. And um, I think doctors have done a great job um, improvising, figuring out how to get supplies, how to get water, medications for, for their patients. At the same time, um, the mental health system does not have a very broad reach throughout the society and the millions of people who are traumatized. There, is, there isn't really an outpatient psychotherapy and outpatient psychiatry system that would offer help to these people. And uh, there is an amazing response from the civil society and a lot of organizations who offer support and therapy, but standards of that therapy vary, and that is not, not terribly systematic. So 
Uh, to that, I would add that in the Ukraine, the health insurance does not pay for outpatient Medicaid. So when you are in the hospital, you get your treatment covered. But when you go home, sometimes people only have money from their pension or, or their small salary for the first week of medications in a month. And then until the next paycheck, they, they may not have medication. So that that has been difficult. Yeah, I mean that you're bringing up so many so many things. I, I I certainly hadn't considered the fact that you know for patients, for people who getting who are getting care. Yes, you have civil society who's doing a lot of volunteer work. The organization that you're both involved in, but at the same time, is you know one has to have means to continue to continue care. And in the situation as such as it is, I would imagine that's incredibly difficult because. As both of you pointed out, some of the basic supply issues are also really critical to bring to people. So I can only imagine, you know, this kind of outpatient care or medication is a, is a, just another challenge on top of so many other challenges. Um, what about people who are not directly in in the war zone, in the sense along the front line, who are maybe in the the western part of the country, or even in Kiev, where of course you're getting bombed. Um, but it's a it's a different type of experience. What can you both speak to the issue? How the war has affected the mental health of people who are in other parts of the country? Carmen, if you want to start. Correct. I just saw a couple of hours ago on the news that Kiev has been bombed again today. I uh, I would try to if I would imagine how would it be if I live in you know beautiful Pittsburgh and uh, from a few bombs and drones here and there. It, the the uncertainty of, of those traumatic events is also contributing to, let's say, to the mm, risk of chronicity for, for mental health issues. On the other hand, as Alex said, there is an overwhelming sense of meaning and of purpose. If one thing I think was that Putin managed to do with this war was give birth to the modern Ukrainian nation to and it's remarkable to see not only the resilience but the the continuous energy uh, and drive to to do everything possible not just for themselves for for those around them. Now, for the western part of the country, there there are issues related, obviously, to overcrowding. Some of the hospitals in the eastern part have been um, evacuated to western Ukraine, and they have to do to deal with uh, with that. Then, uh, I think we also encounter now the the massive, you know, attack uh, on the grid and the lack of electricity throughout the country. And it's cold there. It's probably colder than it's here now. And it's going to get much colder. So um, that's, uh, that just aids to, to the other issues as well. People with mental illness have experienced the disruption of supplies of, of medication. They couldn't get medications in Odessa. Uh, even in Lviv, it wasn't it wasn't easy. So this disruption of the supply chain was instantaneous, and that's a problem that's not still solved. There are shortages of, of staff because men 
are mobilized and drafted into the military and many people have left. So there is this kind of sense of fragmentation and also unpredictability. You're running a hospital. You don't know how many people you will have working for you. Uh, to that, um, we should add the fear of country of, uh, in cities along the Dnieper River, such as Zaporizhia, um, Rog, Rih, and, um, also further west, like Mykolaiv, that they will be invaded and that there will be a Russian occupation. And many people have had to, of course, flee and others who continue to work there are, were living in fear. I think it's looking better now, but first half um, of 2022 was very difficult. Is Are there any efforts outside in, in say, Poland or some of the main areas in which you, Ukrainian refugees are going to, to address mental health issues? Well, we do have a program going on in Lithuania that I'll talk about it in a moment, but the overall answer is yes. Talking about collective historical and transgenerational trauma, that part of the world does remember the 20th century and they kind of rallied around the Ukrainians and have been very welcoming and tried to help the the refugees. Our organization is um, has a headquarter, one of them is in the Netherlands, but the other one is in uh, Lithuania in Vilnius, which is 30 kilometers from the border with Belarus. And uh, they they had an influx of refugees from both Belarus and from uh, Ukraine. And now we do have there an aid, a psychological aid center, where we hired psychologists from Mariupol, refugees from the war, and uh, they... Uh, uh, they conduct interventions, they help patients from uh, both Ukraine and Belarus who are directed. I will add that the professional associations of psychiatrists in Poland, in Western Europe, Germany, the Netherlands have been wonderful in organizing medication shipments to Ukraine. So that that support started early and has been very, very consistent and, and helpful. And while host countries try to help refugees, there's a problem of the language barrier, right? So people speak Russian or Ukrainian, and they cannot take advantage of the clinics that are there. That's why um, we were very happy that we were able to create that center in Vilnius where people deliver care in Ukrainian and now, you, you, both of you and, and Carmen, you're, you're highly involved in this Federation Global Initiative on Psychiatry. You've already talked a little bit about the organization, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about it more and in particular, how people can help. You know, what can we do to help this organization and the situation that you, you are both addressing? Sure. We are both heavily involved. I, I just happen to have been involved with them for longer, but we've both put a lot of effort. We basically took a second job to, to try and uh, and help a, as much as, as we could. So the organization is international, the American branch. It's, it has a history also. It, it's not new. It started many years ago. Right now, 
except for Alex and I, there are several other people involved, people with a, long, a lot of experience in uh, psychiatry and human rights, like Dr. Lauren Ross, who's also it, Professor Richard Boney, who's a mental health lawyer from the University of Virginia, Mrs. Ellen Mercer, who worked with WPA and with the American Psychiatric Association and was also part of that uh, whole group that started to do mental health reform. So it's a group effort. We are relying, obviously, on financial aid from individuals, anybody who can help. There is very, we tried to make it very easy for people to be able to donate online through our website. We also work with various um, foundation and humanitarian organizations who want to contribute to this. I would really want to emphasize, for example, the role of Brothers Brothers Foundation that have been tremendously helpful uh, in this first stage that Alex was talking about, of delivering aid, you know, getting things from point A to point B. And uh, now we are working with them among others, to try and help with uh, getting electrical generators. Very simple things. There is no electricity. Those people are going to freeze to death. And one generator that can cover a large hospital is about, uh, I think, fifteen to $20,000. And it, we have local uh, connections to be able to deliver them. But our mission here in the States from the warmth of our houses and the safety of our cities, hopefully, is to, to help them financially to, to be able to, to deliver what's needed to relieve a little bit of, of the horrible experience that these people have to endure now. Well, for those of you who are listening, um, I, I put the, the link to the Global Initiative on Psychiatry in the chat. It's www.gip-global.org. Alex. I wanted to second that Brothers Brother Foundation, which is an organization with a track record in global health, uh, has been amazing. And Ozzy Samad, the CEO, has been involved in helping Ukraine since February 28th. They helped a lot and they also helped fast. It took us many months to take a grant from the European, get a grant from the European Union, whereas Aussie is able to make decisions promptly when we need generators. That said yes. And that's why the generosity of private do donors is very important that like, getting money now when things are happening, as opposed to months later from government agencies really helps. And people might wonder, you know, the U.S. has sent billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine. Why do we need to, to donate? And the answer is that most of that aid is military. And also most of the government's efforts are mobilized by the war. Right. And um, the healthcare system for civilians has been relatively neglected. And um, it's just difficult to run in peacetime. And it's especially difficult now and we can do a lot with uh, small uh, small donations and and small but strategically placed uh, supplies and aid another thing i will add is that on the optimistic note uh, the post-war reconstruction is an opportunity for reform in the ukraine and now for example when many hospitals were evacuated to the west 
uh, we're taking the opportunity to equip um, a model unit for forensic psychiatry for prisoners uh, with mental illness. And uh, we also hope to support the training of the staff um, to create a mental health that's modern um, and respects human rights and is effective. And we're also thinking about other opportunities to offer training and, and support to the Ukrainian mental health system. So uh, Carmen just put in the chat the link to the U.S. branch of uh, it's for the Global Initiative um, on Psychiatry. Uh, it's gip-usa.org. So if you, you know, if this issue, if you want to help out, please, you know, go to the websites, give a donation, send send the, the websites to people who you think you might be interested. I'll, of course, include it when I, when I do the podcast. Um, I just have one question for our guests. So if you have any questions yourself, uh, please put them in the Q&A or in the chat. Um, you know, listening to both of your, you speak, there's a level of calmness or pay, I, I don't, I can't really describe it, but what I'm curious about is, is how has this work affected your work in Ukraine and the war impacted you? I mean, both of you, you know, the, when the invasion began or a few days before the invasion began, even you were certainly like put into action, right? You mobilized your, them, yourselves for your own individual reasons. How has this exp the experience of the work you've been doing influenced you and the stories you've been hearing influenced you? It is, of course, very hard, even for us professionals, to see people go through suffering and uh, trauma. At the same time, the ability to do something has been wonderful for me. I, I, I think it has helped my own mental health. Um, and uh, I will add that as a Russian, it, it is particularly hard and confusing. I, I had a conversation with a Ukrainian publisher and museum director, Oksana Petsucha, uh, who came to Pittsburgh as a refugee after being caught in the Russian-occupied wedge toward Kiev in the north uh, near Borodyanka. And she, esca she escaped through the front lines, having seen un unspeakable uh, horrors. Um, <clears throat> And uh, she called me knowing that I was looking for information and, and ways to help. And um, she spoke Ukrainian and there was a pause. And I said in Ukrainian, I unfortunately don't speak Ukrainian. We can speak Russian or English. And she said, I'll speak Russian to you just out of the respect for the cause. I don't think I'll be speaking Russian. And these are Ukrainians for whom Russian is the first language. And there were a lot of questions for me about my Russian identity. Do, do, do I continue speaking Russian to my children? Which I, I think the, ans the answer is yes. Um, and that seeing ru other Russians who are interested in helping, and I would say that the Russian diaspora has been uh, mostly supportive of, of the Ukraine. And people have donated. Um, that's, that's been also very healthy, very good. How about for you, Carmen? How has this experience helped uh, impacted you? Oh, I'm furious, but I'm a psychiatrist, so you cannot tell. Uh, but but of course, meaning is a great thing. It adds, it it keeps you going. I uh, 
I had to carve because, uh, you know, just as Alex, I do have, I spend most of my time doing research, but I do have a clinical practice. So this is kind of like the third job that for a while took over a lot of my time, especially, you know, evenings and weekends. And it's, I don't want to slow down unless things slow down there. But as Alex said, if things slow down there, if if the war stops, there's going to be a lot of work for us to do to help in the reconstruction. We already started to talk about that. And there are frameworks that we were discussing about on how um, how to do that going forward. Yeah, sure. First, I think that's the most important thing because it's very hard to try and do any kind of therapy if you don't you don't have the basic a basic level of comfort. We we provide psychological support to you know people who are close to the front line through this web based form called Samopomich, which has it's self-help. Yeah, it, yes, but it also, what it does, it also helps people, guides people toward several um, mental health professionals. So we have a whole team that responds to, to requests, to requests from parents. We had uh, many, again, stories, some more horrific than others of mothers calling from basements with kids being in how to deal with with kids who are in full panic mode because they hear the bombs and we're trying that too but and for that we also need help because at the beginning of the war a lot of these efforts were based on volunteers and after a while those people also need financial support but on top of that the longer the the conflict continued more and more people had to be helped. So fortunately, more and more aid was, is needed. That was Drs. Carmen Andrescu and Alex Dombrovsky. Dr. Alex Dombrovsky is a geriatric psychiatrist and a neuroscientist at the University of Pittsburgh. He's originally from Moscow, and he studies decision-making and mental illness and takes care of patients mostly with severe depression and dementia. And since the start of the war, Alex has been raising money for Ukrainian mental health. Dr. Carmen Andrescu is an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh as well, and the president of the Global Initiative on Psychiatry, USA. Through this organization, both Carmen and Alex have been trying to work through nonprofits to provide mental health services to people in Ukraine. If you'd like to make a donation to their efforts, go to www.gip-usa.org or to www.gip-global.org. That's the American and global branches of the Global Initiative on Psychiatry. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media. Tell your friends to listen. Uh, drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at srbpodcast.org. Let me know what you think of the show. This will actually be helpful uh, in my rethinking of things and how I'm going to move forward. And as always, I'd love to have your support. Though the SRB podcast name is ending, 
the podcast itself in some form or fashion will return and continue. Therefore, I still need your support. This will still be a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on people like yourselves and other institutions to keep it open and free to listeners and free from advertisements. So please help me keep it that way. Go to srbpodcast.org, join the table of ranks, um, and I'll see you in February. Thanks for listening. Bye. Моя морозочка, моя ты куколка, моя морозочка, моя ты душенька, моя морозочка, а жить-то хочется, я ведь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.